those receivers collect um, the, the, the radio signals coming out of the aircraft. And from that radio signal, there's information about the aircraft's position, speed, heading, altitude, things like that. Welcome to another episode of the Mapscaping Podcast. My name is Daniel and this is a podcast for the mapping community. Today I'm talking to Ian from Flight Radar 24 and Flight Radar 24 tracks airplanes in real time. It's an interesting story and I really hope you enjoy the interview. Hi Ian, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. Uh, and what we're going to be talking about is Flight Radar 24. Uh, maybe you could tell us a little bit about the history of, of this uh, website. Absolutely. Thank you uh, so very much for having me. It, it's a pleasure to be here, and uh, I'm glad we could uh, sit down and, and, and chat. So uh, Flight Radar 24 started um, in 2006-2007 as a side project, um, n- not even a side project, just as a, a small project within um, what was then our co-founder's uh, flight and travel reservation booking uh, service. Think you know along the lines of you know kayak or or something like that, where you're pulling in bookings from from multiple sources to to provide price comparison. And they were looking for a way to bring traffic to to that site. And so what they did is they set up uh, a couple ADSB receiver antennas. Um, in Stockholm, Sweden, where they were based. And from there, they started to generate a map with traffic on it, uh, air, air traffic, what was around Stockholm. And that little uh, widget or, or embed that was on the price comparison site started to see more and more and more traffic and, and eventually started to see more traffic than the price comparison site. Um, so doing what, what any good business folk would do, they, they decided that perhaps there was an opportunity here to create a, a full-fledged uh, service based on the ADSB receivers and displaying that information on the map. And that is how Flight Radar 24 was born. And I realize now after hearing you you tell that story that I made a bit of a, a critical mistake right at the start there. I, I introduced Flight Radar as a website, but it's not a website at all. I mean, it has a website, of course. We can we can go there and we can log on and we can see what's happening. We can see the flight the the flights from all over the world moving around. But what it actually is is a network of receivers. And you mentioned a little bit about the kind of data that's been sent back and forth. But but maybe we could dive a little bit into that network. How how, how does it work? Sure. So the the network that we have right now uh, grew from uh, just you know a few receivers in the Stockholm area to uh, over twenty thousand uh, terrestrial based uh, ADSB receivers around the world now, and and so it's it's grown quite handedly over the over the past uh, you know dozen or so years, and those receivers collect. Um, the, the the radio signals coming out of the aircraft, and from that radio signal, there's information about the aircraft's position, speed, heading, altitude, things like that. And then we use that information that's collected by our receivers as a way of plotting everything onto a map and and combining that with with other information that comes from third party sources or our own databases to provide a, a global picture of, of air travel. And this network, it's it's crowdsourced largely, largely, isn't it? Yeah. So the the way that we the way that we source the data is, is twofold. 
the the first is that we have our own receiver kits that we send out to qualified hosts around the world. Uh, and when I say qualified hosts, I mean folks who are in a, a very good geographic position, um, but also have the, the ability to to set up the antenna in, in a good location such that coverage is, is good near an airport or uh, on top of a mountain or, or something like that, where, where the coverage of that specific receiver is going to be very beneficial. Um, the other the other method that we use is we provide a software uh, package for for users who want to develop their own receiver, um, and what we suggest is using a, a Raspberry Pi uh, because it's a we've developed a, a rather simplified method of, of getting the image onto the Raspberry Pi, and and it's from there it's it's nearly plug and play. Okay, so we've got this huge network. We've got 20,000 receivers, possibly more, out there in the world creating the, this network. And each of these receivers is is receiving data from the air, aircrafts that are moving around the world, and they're receiving um, altitude and call sign maybe and position. And I think in, in the pre-interview you said something about depending on what type of data is being sent, they could also be sending um, or receiving sorry, some, some weather information. So we've got this huge, huge network, and we've got this amazing live tracking of these aircrafts uh, on a map. What, what are we doing with this data? What's the, what's the use case for this? Sure. So the, the use case is dependent on on who the user is. We we can we can segment the the use case into a variety of a variety of um, kind of channels. And, and the first is I, I think the most personally important is someone who wants to know where a specific plane is because they have someone important to their lives on board. Um, if, if you know grandma's coming to visit, you want to know. Uh, exactly when she's going to get there so that you can get to the airport in time to pick her up, or you want to know if she's going to be delayed. Um, your kids are traveling and you want peace of mind. Uh, you just know where they are, things like that. Um, if Or if, if you are soon to be on board an aircraft, you can know where it's coming from and whether or not it's going to be delayed, which is you know thoroughly important if you're trying to decide on whether or not to have another drink at the bar uh, at the airport. Uh, so, I mean, it, it can be, you know, that that's one of the, the generally important, uh, important kind of things um, that, that a lot of people use our service for. Uh, the, the other is um, the other kind of, you know, general retail use is, is plane spotters uh, or folks who are just interested in in the aircraft themselves, uh, whether it's a special type of aircraft that they really like or it's a special livery so that there's special painting on that particular aircraft and they just want to uh, to be able to see it in person or, or get a picture of it or something like that um, that's a, a a big chunk of our users as well that's really interesting like i i never actually knew that there were plane spotters obviously i'd, I'd heard of train spotters before but that was mainly boasted because of because of the the movie train spotting but plane spotters that, that's a little bit new for me there must be some kind of more sort of business driven use case for, for this kind of data i'm thinking because it sounds like a pretty amazing network that you've collected and when you when you log on to flight radar 24 or go to the website you know, it's pretty impressive to see all these planes moving around the world. And I'm assuming if they're all sort of sending out real-time information saying, I am here, my my name is, I am traveling at this direction, and maybe a little bit about at this out altitude perhaps, and about the, the weather in, in some cases, that must 
build an amazing database over time. Absolutely. The the main kind of uh, enterprise use case uh, is certainly not in knowing where a single flight is, um, but knowing where a group of flights are or a group of aircraft or even a global data set of aviation, um, especially if you're working on a, a larger project that, that benefits from having a large amount of data available. Having a, a data set that spans years um, and, and global air traffic really kind of lends itself to to allowing those users to make business decisions based on the data that we've collected. Uh, so for example, airlines or airports looking at historical patterns uh, of usage of particular particular runways, perhaps, or particular aircraft types, if an airline is interested in finding out how their their um, fleet or subfleet is doing uh, on a particular you know set of KPIs, then we're able to provide that information so that they can balance their their business decisions based on historical data. And uh, and what we see is the ability of um, we see the the ability of, of that large data set to influence some some really important business decisions that that airlines, airports, and and even air framers are undertaking. Um, I come from the the GIS, the Geographical Information Systems or Science world, and the geospatial world, and we're all about mapping. We're all about using different data data layers, I guess, to to make decisions. And I guess one of the classic use cases for for this. For, for GIS, for the system of layering geographic data would be show me the best place for something. Could you imagine this data being used in that kind of analysis? Like where's the best place to put an airline, uh, sorry, an, an airport? Uh, I, I would think that there might be uh, certainly some some valuable insight that you could glean from this particular data uh, as far as where to site a future airport, um, possibly based on you know, current flight patterns or things like that, areas that are lacking kind of the congestion that would influence operations at a, at a particular airport. So it, you don't want to necessarily add to the congestion in airspace. I mean, if you look at um, a great example of extremely congested airspace is New York City, or the area around New York City, you have three uh, of the world's busiest airports within five miles of each other, uh, Newark, LaGuardia, and, and JFK. And, and so you wouldn't want to put another airport near there. Um, and, and so using kind of the, the flight path data that we were able to generate, uh, you, you could say, okay, that, that would be a, a terrible place to put an airport, but what about over here? Uh, so yeah, I mean, it, that's certainly something that, that I could see the data being useful for. When you dive into this, this this database that you're collecting, can you see any trends or patterns over time? Is there anything that stands out? Yeah, I mean, if um, if you're looking at putting things onto the map, one of the one of the most striking things uh, once you know what you're looking for, I think, is is viewing the jet stream um, because all of the transatlantic aircraft that are headed from North America to Europe are going to take advantage of the jet stream. Um, when, you know, when the, the wind is good, they'll, they'll take that tailwind and they'll avoid the jet stream, you know, on the reverse trip. So, so flying from, 
from Europe to, to North America, they'll, they'll either go north of the jet stream or south of the jet stream, depending on where their final destination is. And so what you end up seeing is, is over time, really a, a visualization of, of the jet stream as as a function of air travel uh, so that's one of the the neat things that you can see where where the planes are is going to be you know generally where the where the jet stream is so that that's one of the the neat little uh, visual patterns that you can pick up i could imagine that um, things like border conflicts or, or conflict zones in general that they, they, they must change the way people travel change the way aeroplanes fly, change the, the paths that they fly on. Is that kind of thing, is it visible in this data? A- absolutely. A- absolutely, yeah. And the, the, um, I would say the most, the most striking example of, of kind of conflict zone avoidance at the moment is uh, the most recent change in the, the India, uh, Pakistan, Afghanistan corridor. Uh, where a, a recent kind of increase in tensions between India and Pakistan closed, uh, Pakistan closed its airspace. And so flights that would normally fly to to Southeast Asia from Europe and, and transit Afghanistan, Pakistan, and India are now flying around. So Iran and then through Oman airspace into India. Uh, so you see kind of this, um, it's almost like somebody stepped on the planes to push them south. Uh, so you see kind of a, a levering action where the, the routes are moving south. Um, over the past few years, the the most most striking example would probably be eastern Ukraine, where you see very few flights there, but flights immediately along the border in, in Russia, along the eastern border of Ukraine in, in Russia, and then as well as the, the western half of Ukraine. Uh, Syria is another one um, where there, there aren't a lot of you know, there's not a lot of traffic and, and not a lot of airlines willing to fly over Syria or, or allowed to, for that matter. And then uh, the reopening of Iraqi airspace to commercial traffic after a, a good number of years, I believe in 2017, um, shifted things back from, from Iran had become a very uh, heavily trafficked corridor. And now that the Iraqi airspace is open, uh, you see a thinning there. Um, so you can see kind of a, a new two-lane highway open up as flights traverse north and south. When you talk about this, it, it's, it seems really obvious. I mean, of course, planes would, would deviate and take another flight path you know, to, to avoid these zones. That makes perfect sense. But it's not something you experience or think too much about as a passenger. You just sit on the plane and assume you're going to end up you know, at the final destination unharmed. Yeah, it, well, of course, and and the one of the things that I think is is very interesting that and like you said, you don't really think about it uh, unless you're you know interested in it or or if something happens and, and things like that is that you know there there are so many flight paths around certain either conflict zones or or you're deviating around weather or things like that. Um, and you see these holes open up uh, around thunderstorms or around areas that, you know, you don't want to be flying over and things like that. Um, and, and then they become, you know, patterns that you're always looking for. Uh, where, where if you're if you're on our site and you see a kind of there's no planes in a particular area, you go, oh, I wonder if there's a storm there. And then you can turn on a weather layer and, and say, yes, there there is, in fact, a thunderstorm there and flights are going around. That, that brings me actually to another question. Um, we talked earlier about that you integrate this flight data, flight paths with 
other kinds of data. So whether as one of it, one of those data sets, do you use any other kind of data sets? Uh, yeah. So the, the information that comes from the aircraft is just about that particular craft and is just the, the location data and, and associated kind of data points of speed heading and things like that. Um, but to provide a, a really useful service, what we need to do is, is tell folks what, what that aircraft is um, and, and whose aircraft it is um, and where it's going, where it's coming from. So, so all of that information comes from uh, either our own uh, database of aircraft and, and airports and things like that, or uh, third-party databases that provide the scheduling information and, and associated uh, information as far as that goes, so that you can combine that information with the information of where the aircraft is to provide a, a more holistic picture. Absolutely. That sounds like a, like a good approach, and it sounds like a, a useful thing to be doing, combining data, especially of those data types. Um, when you look out into the future, if we look five years out for, for flight radar, where, where do you see the service? Where do you see the network as well? I, th I think the, the big thing is um, our, our focus has been for the last number of years and, and continues to be global coverage uh, and, and tracking every flight that, that we can possibly track. And so over the next five years, um, and, and even before then, our, our focus is expanding the terrestrial network as much as we can, uh, especially improving upon our our receivers and, and the network, both in terms of geographic scope, but also in terms of, of technical uh, ability, things that we're doing to, to improve radio reception and, and transmission speeds and, th and things of that nature so that the the, the technical aspects of the, the network are even bigger. But the I think the big leap uh, is certainly going to be the inclusion of satellite data and, and external data sources that allow us to take advantage of new technologies that are able to, to host receivers, um, especially, you know, the the explosion of um, space technologies and nanosatellites and, and things of that nature that allow us to to more easily and inexpensively partner with a, a variety of organizations that, that are moving in that direction. Could you imagine that a satellite could actually uh, replace the terrestrial network at some stage? Could, we, could you track everything by satellite? I, I, you could. Um, but the the terrestrial network, I think, really maintains a is the heart of of what we do, and and it'll remain so for for a very long time. Uh, not the least of which is is the the importance of having multiple sources, uh, uh, especially for when you're collecting radio signals and, and things of that nature. And we need to have the ability to collect from multiple sources. Um, but one of the things that the terrestrial network offers that uh, the satellite network doesn't, doesn't offer uh, at this point is multilateration. And so the ability to use those, those fixed position receivers to, to determine the position of aircraft that aren't necessarily sending out um, the position information, but just a, a radio signal that tells us that, I'm an aircraft, um, and then we have to calculate the rest of that information out of based on the the time difference of arrival of those signals. Um, so the ability to have a an in position terrestrial network really really helps us in that regard. But it also provides a, a checksum 
of sorts uh, on the the ADSB data coming either from the terrestrial network or or from from a space network in the ability to to use multilateration as a as sort of a tool to to create a checksum to understand the ADSB data a little bit better. So Ian, we're slowly but surely coming to the end of our time together. But, but before I let you go, I've just got a couple more questions. And the first one, we've talked a lot about data. So I was wondering, is, can you put some numbers around how much data you're collecting? Like how many signals are you receiving a day, a week, a month, that, that kind of thing? So we could get a, a little bit more of a nuanced picture of the size of this network. Sure. So the the, I guess... Funny is a, is an interesting word, but I'll go with funny because I got a good chuckle out of it. Um, there's not a lot of data coming in because the data is designed to be so small. I mean, when we're talking about data, it, it's a lot, um, but a daily volume is about 400 gigabytes, um, which when I first started, I thought surely there, there's you know terabytes of data coming in. It, you know, there's got to be so much. Uh, but when you dig into it, the radio signals are designed to be, I mean, they're designed to be economical. The, the, the signals are designed to be small um, as far as the amount of data that they're sending. So, so the daily volume inbound to all of our receivers is, is about 400 gigabytes. Obviously, that number grows when you start including you know, throughput and, and things like that and, and processing. But, uh, but that kind of a, is, a, is a basic overview of the, the data coming in. Yeah, I guess for a, a global network of this scale, it's not a great deal of data because I'm thinking that they don't just stop receiving. You know, it's not like they, they start from 8 o'clock in the morning and stop at 4 o'clock. It's 24 hours a day, seven days a week kind of thing. But it, yeah, so, so that's really interesting. Okay, the next question is, let's say I'm all in, which I am. I, I love what you're doing. It's a, great, it's a great idea and it's obviously working. It's providing a useful service for lots and lots of people. But let's say... I would like to be a part of this. How would I go about being a part of the network and setting up my own receiver? And w- would that in, in turn give me access to, to this data? Yeah, the, the, the great thing is that anyone can join the, the, the Flight Radar 24 network. Um, we, we have, like, like I said before, we have two kind of um, different tracks. And, and the first track is we will send you a full receiver kit. Um, if you are in a good position to provide uh, some really good data or you're in a position where we don't yet have um, have enough coverage. And so what that kit includes is the, the actual radio antenna, uh, a GPS antenna, and then the, the physical receiver box, the, the computer. And that's just plug and play into into power and internet, you, you mount the antenna where, you know, outside uh, on a mast or your roof or, or something like that, where it has a you know view of the sky and, and then you, you're, you're all set. The, the second one uh, is anybody can do this. You don't have to be in a, in a great position. Um, you don't necessarily have to have a 360 degree view of the sky. Um, if you're just interested in radio signals or aircraft tracking or anything like that, you can get a Raspberry Pi, uh, head to our website, um, and then click on add coverage. And we walk through all of the steps that you need to to go from, uh, I bought a Raspberry Pi to I'm now feeding um, feeding data into the Flight Radar 24 network. And, and both of those, um, both of those options include a free business subscription, 
So as a thank you for for providing data from from your area, you get a, a business subscription which includes um, lots of uh, our best features, and it's the, the highest subscription we offer to to individuals. Um, so you get you know two years of historical data, um, different uh, charting options, so aeronautical charts and things like that, weather features, um, and, and we're adding new features all the time. Ian, it's been really, really interesting hearing about uh, about your work and about the network and about the future possibilities of it. Um, before we say goodbye, uh, where can we go to to follow along and learn more about the, what you're up to? Sure. So the 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 best way to to follow along with the aircraft is is just flightradar24.com, uh, and then you can find us as flightradar24 on a variety of social media platforms: uh, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. VK, LinkedIn, where, wherever you choose to, to be social, uh, you can find us there. Excellent. Hey, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. I appreciate you having me on. This was a lot of fun. Thank you so much. And that's it for another episode of the Mapscaping Podcast. My name is Daniel, and I really want to thank you for listening to these episodes. It's much appreciated. If you want to reach out to me for whatever reason, you can find me on social media at Mapscaping on Facebook and Twitter. And also, if you have a friend that you think might enjoy these podcasts or podcast episodes, I should say, please share it with them. I'd really appreciate it. Thanks again, and we'll talk again soon. Bye.